Listening Dog Media. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Join me, David Seaman, every week on my podcast, Seaman Says, as we react to all the weekend's football action from the Premier League and beyond. Plus, I'm joined by former teammates, legends of the game, and famous friends to discuss football and more. Jack Grealish turned up a bit later and he was like, uh, I was hoping you'd get me up to do She's the One. I really like <laughs> She's the One. <laughs> That's a great present. <laughs> he turned up late. I can't believe he yeah. turned up late for you. Listen to the latest episode of Seaman Says on your favourite podcast platform. You're one of the most famous DJs in the world. How does that sit with you? I've lost you, Chris. You're back Am now. So do you want to start that one again? You're one of the most famous DJs in the world. Bearing in mind also that you you said that you wanted to be a rock star. H- how does that kind of tag sit with you? Mm, you've gone again. Are, are we back? Uh, Am I here? You are back, yeah. I'm going to try it one more time. I was going to say... <laughs> I, I just, I just, I'm, I'm, it's not actually breaking up at all. I just like hearing you say that I'm one of the most famous DJs in the world. No, go on. <laughs> right. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. It's what I love, is which is music and, and talking. So um, that's when it began then. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. Learn to count to four and have good taste. I still didn't have two turntables at home, so I learned to mix in front of people (laughs) a podcast that explores the life stories techniques minds and experiences of much loved djs where i ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45 i never intended to be a dj i always wanted to be a pop star and for this episode i'm with a superstar dj it's almost an oxymoron all we were doing is providing the soundtrack and the crowd for me at the superstars he started djing as a student in brighton i quickly took a job in a bar called the electric grape where i didn't get paid but I got to play for four hours learning how to mix. In the mid 80s he was in a band. If you've grown up watching Top of the Pops and listening to Radio 1, to finally be on those things is just a thrill that's unimaginable. He's had chart success with Beats International, Freak Power, Pizza Man and the Mighty Dubcats. It became accessible to have a drum machine and a sampler and all of a sudden white kids could make dance music without having to pretend to be black. And he's one of the most famous DJs in the world ever. I get him out for two hours, I put on the Hawaiian shirt. Norman Cook, Fat Boy Slim, welcome to How to DJ. How you doing? Norman, where did it all go right? Well, it's a series of happy coincidences, actually, Chris. I never intended to be a DJ. I always wanted to be a pop star from when I was about eight years old. And DJing didn't really register, but what I was was a vinyl junkie, a collector of all the records. And then when we were like 14 or 15 years old and we started having parties, obviously without streaming and whatever, the only way that you could hear the cool music at a party was if somebody had all the records. So I used to get invited to the parties just because of my record collection. People say, bring your box of records, which worked for a while. And then until the teenage parties started involving large amounts of alcohol, vomit and cigarette ash. 
and my records started getting trashed at the party. So I said, I'll come to the party, but I'm not doing my records because they'll get trashed. And then one friend of mine, whose parents had a bit of money, she said, what about if my dad hires these double decks, you know, like a disc jockey? And I sort of said, oh, that sounds like fun. And so they did, and I had the time of my life. It was sort of my love of music and sharing it with other people, suddenly mixed with my love of showing off and, and entertaining people. And everybody really loved it, and I really loved it. So from then on, all the parties, everybody, they would hire these local double Citronic Thames console, and I would sort of DJ. But it was always supposed to be a hobby, and in those days, DJing was a hobby. You got paid like a tenner, and you were slightly above the glass collector in the food chain of the nightclub or the party that you were playing. And it was just a hobby for people who were fanatical about music and had all the records. And so for years and years and years, I pursued my pop career being in bands, but all the while keeping on this hobby, which I had, which was playing records. And then when DJ culture started becoming mainstream and it came out of the nightclubs and into our wider consciousness, obviously I'd been doing it for 20 years. So I knew how to do it and had it down pat. And there was a very pivotal moment in my career where I realised more people wanted to come and see me play records than play bass. It was a very big moment looking back on it. Where was it that you grew up? I grew up in Rygate in Surrey. And where were you buying your music? Buying it from uh, Rhythm Records in Red Hill, Gramophile Records in Rygate, uh, and Beano's in Croydon as well. So yeah, Red Hill and Croydon. And what were you into? It would have been around punk rock, new wave, then going into two-tone. And that was when I was doing just like sixth form college and hockey club discos. And then I graduated onto weddings because a friend of mine said, look, what we need to do is buy this console rather than hiring it every week. And he was a bit more of a businessman than me. So he said, well, look, let's do this. And we set ourselves up as a mobile disco. And so he bought a little PA and he bought all the gear. But to pay for it, we had to do weddings every weekend, which I would just like to say, if there's one advice I have for any budding DJ, is play weddings because you really learn your chops there. You know, like stand-up comedians have to play the northern clubs and the tough audiences. If you could play weddings, you learn your chops. And Carl Cox will tell you the same. You know, that's how we started, was playing weddings. And if you can entertain a whole load of people who you don't know at all, who don't know each other necessarily very well, but some of them do, add alcohol. And by the end of the night, you will have learnt how they work and what they want and how to read a crowd and how to entertain it. Yeah, so until I was 18 and was old enough to play in licensed establishments, I played parties, weddings. I did a funeral. You learn your chops at a funeral, I can tell you. Tough gig. Uh, yeah. To be honest, the, my, my tip for playing funerals, all you have to do is just scan through the lyrics before you do it. The famous one is uh, a friend of mine who drowned. And at the funeral, they played um, Heroes by David Barry, forgetting, of course, that the second verse goes, I, I wish I could swim. <laughs> when you had free reign to play what you wanted in those early days, what kind of music were you playing? By the time I was sort of seriously DJing and getting into the idea of mixing, it was kind of sort of, it was like the new romantic days. Human League and Heaven 17, they were getting into doing dubby 12-inch mixes. There was this new electronic stuff coming out of New York, like Planet Rock was a very, very pivotal tune. Until then, I'd been playing sort of post-punk mixed with funk. It was kind of sort of, you know, Rock the Cash Bar mixed with James Brown. But then just the year that I started playing in nightclubs, there was this kind of alternative electronic music, some of which was kind of proto-house music, some of it mutated into hip-hop. But there was, there was records like 
The Bottle by Gil Scott Heron was a real anthem. Native Love by Divine, which was a prototype of New Order's Blue Monday. But it was just at the beginnings of sort of the electronic dance music scene starting. Very exciting times. Were you mixing at this stage? Uh, Yeah. As I came of age, I moved to Brighton. And previously, I hadn't been able to afford Technic's turntables, which are the ones that had the very speed so you could mix. But I quickly took a job in a bar called The Electric Grape where I didn't get paid, but I got to play for four hours learning how to mix. And the owner basically taught me how to beat mix, which in those days was a real skill. You really have to know your records and you really have to wind the spindle to keep it in time. And for ages, I had one belt drive turntable and one Technics 1200 because I could only afford the one. So which is great. I meant I could mix on one deck. The other deck had to stay at the same speed. So you have to sort of plan your night. But I got really totally into mixing. And then around the same time, I went to see The Clash and Grandmaster Flash was opening for The Clash. And Grandmaster Flash was scratching. And I was like, what is this alchemy? What are you doing with the turntables? And uh, yeah, sort of spent ages learning how to scratch. So for a while, I was like a scratch hip hop DJ. But I've always been quite eclectic. I've always really liked a broad space, but based around a kind of electronic groove and, and a basis of funk. So were you always teaching yourself then? Was there no one that you were learning from other than the guy that you mentioned in the bar in Brighton? No, I had two huge influences. The guy who gave me my first job at the Electric Grape in Brighton, who also taught me how to use the 1210s, was a guy called Barry Page, who I will thank forever. And then one night there was a crew from Manchester called Broken Glass, which had Kermit from black grape in it and they came down and that's the first time I'd actually seen a DJ scratching that I could talk to and that DJ was Greg Wilson who's still around now and, and, and still a friend of mine basically I, after the show they all came back to mine for the afters and he got on my decks and he showed me how to scratch because until then you watch Grandmaster Flash and you couldn't work out quite what he was doing journalists mistakenly thought that he was picking the needle up and putting it back a groove and so we all tried doing that. It's just going, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So, the, yeah, the mechanics of how to mix and how to scratch, I thank Greg Wilson and Barry Page eternally. Were you still in bands at this time? At this time, I was having a break from bands because I'd moved down to Brighton to do a degree. I'd failed my A-levels because I was in a band with Paul Heaton and I made a decision to myself that if I was going to do a degree, I didn't want to like drop out halfway through because you know, the band was becoming more important than my degree. So I took a step back and I suppose I focused on DJing because it paid my way through college. So I was, yeah, I took a three year sabbatical from being in bands with Paul Heaton. And at the end of those three years, I rejoined Paul Heaton's band, which was the House Martins. I've always wondered how you and Paul met. We just lived in a small town where there was not much to do. And the only thing to do was just form a band and try and play. And I just thought he was Genius. Did you enjoy your time in the house, Martins? Yes. It was a fabulous time. You know, if you've grown up watching Top of the Pops and listening to Radio 1, to finally be on those things is just a thrill that's unimaginable. I mean, what I always say is it's a bit like sex. Your first time isn't necessarily the best, but it's very, very memorable and it was a big moment. And so the house Martins was my first time of actually, you know, touring and seeing the country and driving around in a bus and all the thrills and spills that comes along with that. You know, me and Paul pinching each other, just going, we're on top of the pot. So it's really exciting. And, and But musically, it was never me. I always liked dance music. But in those days, if you liked black music, 
the only way you could play it was to try and pretend to be black, you know, put on American accent or play slap bass or something, you know, and that never sat very well with me. I kind of thought coming from, you know, white middle-class suburbia that I should play that kind of music. And so the house minds I felt was more my legacy, but it wasn't, wasn't really the, the music that turned me on. But then towards the end of the house Martins, it became accessible to have a drum machine and a sampler. And all of a sudden, white kids could make dance music without having to pretend to be black. And that was a very big moment for me in, in life. When and why did you leave the band? Do you remember leaving? Absolutely, yeah. Two problems. One, I wanted to do music based around samples and drum machines and get a bit more kind of funky, uh, which Paul didn't really want at all and the rest of the band didn't want at all. So there was musical differences, but also we just hated each other. You know, we'd spent three years just too close to each other and it was, it was just like, you know, we just got on each other's nerves. But the lovely thing was that we split up and then we started liking each other again. And me and Paul are still firm friends to this day. And six months later, I'm doing dance music and, and remixing and doing what I really love. And Paul's having great success with the Beautiful South. And we just, you know, then we saw each other. It's like, oh, isn't it so much better not being in a band with each other because we can be friends again and we can do the music that we really want to do. And we've both been way more successful doing what's, what's more true to us. So where are we at now in life? What year, roughly? This is 1988. Uh, I've moved back to Brighton from Hull. And just the first week of thinking, what am I going to do now? <laughs> oh, no, the dream is over. <laughs> it's like I had this dream and it for three years. It's been fabulous. And now, now it's all over. But then I just chatting to someone who I knew at a record company who said, oh, we've got this tune by Eric B and Rakim and we want to do a remix. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that'd be easy because there's an acapella on the B side and you can just spin the acapella over a different breakbeat. And he's like, what are these words? And I had a little porter studio, so I demoed a mix where I mixed it over I Want You Back by the Jacksons. And he went, that's brilliant. Let's do it. And I said, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know how to do this. So he put me in a studio with a producer called Danny D, who kind of oversaw my first remix. And it got to like number three in the charts. And all of a sudden, I've got this new career uh, as a remixer. And, and making dance music, which was great because it was around the time of like Cold Cut and Bomb the Bass and all these sort of English people who I'd been DJing with for, for years. And we knew all the records and we had all the records and we were learning the techniques, but we kind of, we, we'd already studied this music. So I kind of luckily fell into this sort of career as a remixer. And then that begat making tunes of my own as Beats International. The message I'm getting so far is that a lot of graft went in to this point yeah it didn't feel like graft a lot of love went into this i love records i love dj culture i totally immersed myself in the idea of cutting up records and finding samples and break beats and acapellas and you know i'd massed this enormous, by now i've amassed an enormous record collection and just devoured every little shred of of, of what was going on in new york and it was a labour of love, not a, not a graft at all. It was a labour of love. And like I said, a hobby, which suddenly became a job. Am I right in thinking this is the sequence? Beats International, then Freak Power, then Pizza Man, and then Mighty Dubcats. Yeah, I mean, Freak Power, Pizza Man and Mighty Dubcats all came at, they're all around the same time. I can't remember which was exactly first. Those three all ran concurrently at that point. I had so many ideas. It was like one band or one project wasn't enough to get all the ideas I was having at that point. 
so Pizza Man was kind of like a handbag house alter ego. Mighty Dubcats was the more experimental kind of Latin-based stuff. And then Freak Power was kind of psychedelic funk. It was weird because those three projects all could work at the same time. And nobody really knew that I was Pizza Man. Nobody really knew that I was the Mighty Dubcats. And it kind of worked. And I would tour as Freak Power, but then get other people to front the other bands. But then when Fatboy Slim came along, it kind of just engulfed all the rest of them. I just didn't have time. When was Fatboy Slim born? I think it was about 95, 96. It started from my DJing. It started because I was sort of making house records as Pizza Man and the Dubcats, but the house music was coming a bit formulaic and a bit dull it had that huge 90s thing and there'd been some great stuff but it just felt like it was becoming a bit samey so as a dj i got bored of playing house and i was trying to find, use the energy of house but with the the funk of breakbeats rather than just being kind of stodgy 4-4 and i just as a dj i just started playing a way more eclectic kind of mix which sort of developed into a genre mainly when I met the Chemical Brothers. I was playing these sort of weird sets where I'd play speeded up hip-hop records at 45, you know, uh, sort of techno records at 33. And then a friend of mine who lived in London said, you know those crazy sets you play? There's, there's these people called the Chemical Brothers in London who are doing the same thing. You've got to come and see them. So she dragged me up to the Heavenly Social and I met them. It was like meeting your sort of long-lost brothers that you never knew you had. That was when we were kind of thinking, well, this could be... A, you know, a different thing and I could make records as, as this rather than just, you know, it, we wanted to play sets like that, but there weren't enough records. It was hard to find a two hour set of this sort of crazy mix that we had in our head. They were making records as the Dust Brothers. And I think at that point I'd had maybe one Fat Boy Slim tune out, but it just, there was a, a momentum that grew from this sort of kind of house, not house. Well, there were so many different terms for it. We called, some people called it house, not house. Some people called it trip, no. Some people called it Brit Hot. There was Amel House, UK Breakbeat, but Big Beat seemed to be the, uh, the moniker that stuck, which I'm tremendously proud of, by the way, because if you think house music was named after the Warehouse Club in Chicago, garage music was named after the Paradise Garage, and Big Beat was named after the Big Beat Boutique in Brighton. Very proud. Yeah, I'm sure. Do you remember your very first gig as Fat Boys then? I don't, know because I've got a flyer for, I think, the first ever Big Beat Boutique, where I was actually billed as Norman Cook and as Fatboy Slim. I'm pretty sure I, don't, I didn't play two sets as the different people, but I kind of had a name as a remixer as Norman Cook, but the Fatboy Slim kind of persona was beginning to grow. So, no, I don't think there was ever that kind of, I don't know, Bob Dylan, Judas moment where I suddenly wasn't me anymore. I suppose people would just bill me as Fatboy Slim as the Fatboy Slim records started becoming more popular. What were your best nights in that club? Oh, the original, the first couple of years when we were in the original Concord, which was like a scout hut by the pier in Brighton. And it used to serve teas to old ladies in the afternoons and then turn over to us in the evenings. And that was the most exciting time I think I've ever had as a DJ because we kind of felt we were onto something. We felt we were doing something different and everybody seemed to be interested in it and turned on by it. And it seemed like the more rules we broke musically and figuratively the more people liked it and it felt like I don't know it felt to us like punk rock or acid house when it first came out it's like 
we're kind of inventing a new scene here. And every week the queues would be longer and every week more and more people would be coming down from London. But at the same time, it was a license to really misbehave, again, musically and literally. And so every week it was like, how far can we push the envelope of the music we play and the behaviour? It was just a, a, a fabulous sense of abandon. But at the same time, we felt we were creating something and, and we were honing it. We were kind of, you know, trying things out. Like, okay, that was, you know, I play, you know, one week I'd play a Brazilian set. <laughs> And it, there was a, there was absolutely anything goes policy, and obviously you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. So we we maybe tried a few things that didn't work, but it was a very very fertile sort of breeding ground. And then other DJs would come down and play for us, and we'd sort of you know compare notes, and it and it felt like we were creating a new scene, and it's very exciting times. How out of control were you? I was pretty out of control in those days. Yeah, another reason why it grew in a certain way was. It was based around music, but it was also based around a kind of atmosphere of abandon in terms of people's behaviour, as kind of anything goes. And the owner of the, the Concord kind of let us get away with murder. I mean, we used to do things like, there was a, in the dressing room, there was a freezer full of fish and chips. And so we would often bring the fish out and wave the fish aloft while we were DJing. It just became a kind of, I don't know, it just became a tradition. But obviously, I don't know if you know much about frozen fish, but they don't stay frozen for very long in a nightclub. And when they defrost, they tend to fall to bits. So there would be like bits of fish everywhere. And yeah, they're sort of misbehavior. But that was, that was, like I said, you know, abandon was the name of the game. And it was like kind of, it felt quite anarchic, but it was definitely probably like the worst behaved I've ever been in nightclubs and in my life. <laughs> Time now, Norman, uh, for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here that's by my side. Uh, all the questions are on 45, Steve's. You just say when, I'll pick one out. When? Is there a secret to being a great DJ? I don't think there is any great secret, but it's, it's a multifaceted thing. You kind of have to have an instinct for what people want to hear. You have to have a genuine love of music. You have to have a little bit of imagination and probably quite a lot of perseverance. So yeah, all those four stars have to fall into line. Probably people starting to DJ now would look at someone like me or someone like Avicii and go, oh, I want to be like him. I want to be a superstar and travel the world, and have all these things. And they can see a definite goal and a very beautiful goal. And so you would be prepared to work the clubs and do pay your dues and whatever, because that's the shining thing. Because when I started DJing, there was no kind of, you know, there was nobody that, oh, I want to be like him. In those days, I don't think anyone wanted to be a DJ. We just fell into it. Whereas now people aspire to it. So you have to work harder. When did the superstar DJ thing start, do you think? If you believe my agent, David Levy, he claims that he coined the term superstar DJ when negotiating a, a humongous deal for Paul Oakenfold. And somebody said, you know, you must be joking. And he just said, look, you want a superstar DJ? You've got to pay superstar prices. I mean, it's never something I've been particularly comfortable with. It's almost an oxymoron because a DJ shouldn't really be a superstar. A DJ is the shepherd of moments. He's just the conduit of people's enjoyment of music. You know, the idea that we were, all we were doing is providing the soundtrack and, and the crowd for me are the superstars. That's how I see it. But in terms of, you know, where you are in the rankings and how you get treated and how much money you make and whether you can demand jelly tots on your rider, I suppose, you know, you have to admit that there is a sort of superstar status. But yeah, I, I still find it slightly oxymoronic. 
Norman, right at the start, I said that you're one of the most famous DJs in the world. And you talked about always wanting to be a pop star. How does a tag like one of the most famous DJs in the world sit with you? I don't know. I, I kind of, I, I accept it. Say if you're making jokes in a sitcom, a budding DJ, you know, if they wanted to say something, they go, oh, you know, Fatboy Slim. So I kind of accept that my level of notoriety. If you told me that I was the, one of the best DJs in the world, I might take issue with you. But I'm comfortable with the fact that I am well known as a DJ and, and hopefully burning that torch for others. I'm tremendously proud of when a lot of people come up to me and say, you're the reason I started DJing. I saw you or I heard you and I wanted to be a DJ. And I'm very proud of that to encourage other people to get into it. Not a role model, but a kind of, you know, an inspiration. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. It was a victim of his own success. That kind of marred it from being the, the ultimate triumph. A piece of music can still transport me to another place, especially when you, you play it really loud to a room full of like-minded people who are digging it the same way you do. Back into the box for your next question. Just say when, I'll pull out another one. And when? What's the most famous you've ever felt? <laughs> Being on the jukebox in the Queen Vic. That's, that was a moment when I felt I have truly a, like happy hours playing in the back. And I'm watching EastEnders. And it's like, hold on. Is that, what, in the, hold on, hold on. And they were playing happy hour in the background in the, in the jukebox. And that's where I thought you've, you've arrived. You're now part of pop culture. Did Quarter of a Million People on Brighton Beach, did that feel quite good too? That felt very, very good, yeah. I mean, that was wonderful in so many ways. I mean, starting for the fact that it was my hometown, it was like that kind of sort of triumphant hometown gig, which I think is always feels like a moment in your career. It's weird because we, it's the 20th anniversary of that really big one and we're doing like a documentary in a book and sort of reassessing it and thinking about where it was in history. And all I can remember is how fraught I was because we knew there was too many people and we were just trying to avoid disaster. So it was kind of tainted on the day. It should have been my greatest moment, but because it was a victim of its own success and because we were so worried about people's safety, that kind of marred it from being the, the ultimate triumph compared to the EastEnders jukebox experience. Can I tell you my, my proudest moment? My, my proudest moment in my whole musical career, or in my, my sort of pop culture career, was having a dildo named after me. How did that happen? I <laughs> it was a good gag, fat boy thin. I, I, I don't know, it wasn't officially licensed product. Someone just one day said, do you know there's a dildo named after you? But yeah, again, they're, they're the sort of things that you kind of, you realise that you've permeated into culture <laughs> further than you expected. Do you ever have to take life seriously these days? I take my personal life and my role as a father and as a human being and as a, as a member of society or this planet, I take that very seriously. I don't take my career quite too seriously because I don't think... It is that serious a career. It's an entertainer. You're there to entertain people. And my form of entertainment in, involves a huge amount of escapism and escaping from reality and trying to create this alternative universe for even just for a couple of hours a week where the stresses of life or mundane or, you know, relationship problems where they disappear and you can just lose yourself in music and dance. And so I'm sort of trying to propagate escapism and most of what you do is absurd. You know, you're kind of making loud squelching noises and playing rhythmical music to people who could listen to it perfectly well at home. But for some reason, when they listen to it all together in a large mass, something very powerful and very beautiful happens. But I, it's all based on nonsense. You know, it's all based on repeated 
memes and squelching noises and, and escapism and stupidity. And so I revel in that. And, and I think that's why I've never been jaded about my career because it's not changing the world. It's uh, just making the world a slightly more palatable and entertaining and groovy place. Back into the box for question three. You say when? When? What do you wish you'd never done? Honestly, my main regret was I upset Primal Scream many, many, many years ago. I was reviewing the singles for NME. They used to have guest reviewers. And I reviewed um, Come Together. And I made it single of the week, but I banged on about Andy Weatherall and said, jokingly said, oh, if I was a record company, I'd sack Primal Scream on Andy Weatherall. And I didn't realise that they would read it and take it quite so to heart. And I didn't realise they were also then going to move to the same town as me. And I was forever mortified with embarrassment. And Bobby, bless him, picked me up on it and still does to this day. But it was just, it was really, you know, it's just a stupid off-the-cuff joke, which haunted me. And, you know, and every time, you come to see Prime Screen, it's like, oh, no, they hate me. But it was a valuable lesson in watch your mouth. And I still have bad dreams about it. I still wake up sweating and screaming in the night. And uh, of all people, Bobby Gillespie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like I said, and, and the thing is, we 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 made up. Oh, he's accepted my apology and everything, but he still every time I see it, he still brings it up, you know. Back into the box for question four, Norman. You say when? When? How much planning goes into your sets? Initially, a huge amount of planning. My every waking moment is always I've got one ear cocked for something that would fit in the set whether it's in other people's music or just in life, in pop culture or whatever, you know. When Greta Thunberg says, right here, right now, I'm like, oh. So I'm always preparing things that might be in it. And then I do an awful lot of editing. Pretty much every tune, that new tune that goes into the set is edited. And I spend all week just trawling through all the tunes I've been sent and all the tunes that are available on the internet. And for me, that's the biggest part of my job, is finding the tunes. Because in this day and age, technology can replace us as DJs quite easily. They nailed the sync button and, they, you know, a computer could mix tunes between each other. But the one thing, they, the algorithm never can quite predict what humans want. The algorithm hasn't worked out the difference between a good record and a bad record. I think I kind of, my instinct over the years can tell a good record from the bad record. So I spend my week wheedling out the bad records so you don't have to. And that's my role, I feel, as a DJ these days. So you only get to hear the good stuff. And my whole week is spent preparing. But then as the gig unfolds, it can go in many, many different ways. And I don't prepare a set. I prepare a potential set, a crate, that can go in different ways depending on the crowd and depending on my mood and the night and the weather and, you know, what we're all feeling together. So I don't prepare the actual set. I don't prepare... The, the weapons that I have in my arsenal to go where the set takes us. I wonder now then, when you started making music, was it just because you wanted better stuff to play in DJ sets? At times, yeah. But my greatest joy is hearing other people make tunes that just turn me on. I've got this thing that when I hear somebody else's tune that's really good, all I want to do is share it with other people. It's like a tree falling on the forest and no one hears. It's like if I don't share a tune with other people, it doesn't exist if it's just in my head and or you know in my ears and that was why during lockdown I had to do like the mixtapes because I had this music didn't fulfill its potential unless it was shared with other people and it turned other people on are you making new music at the moment and are there plans for a new Fatboy Slim album 
There's no plans for a new Fatwell Slim album. I've lost my passion for making music, especially for making music myself as an artist. Yeah, somewhere along the line, I, I sort of lost my erection about it. And I don't feel that I need to kind of force records on people if I'm not, I haven't got an absolute fire in my belly to make them. But at the same time, DJing just gives me more and more satisfaction and pleasure and thrills. And that is my passion at the moment. So I'm pretty much a full-time DJ. And so now producing and remixing is my hobby. I only do it every now and then. I just did a track with Carl Cox. When there's something that I think is really good and really worth doing, or there's somebody like Carl that I really like to do a tune with. I'm just doing something with Idris at the moment. So I tinker these days, but the main thrust of my um, uh, career is DJing. What are you doing with Idris, can you say? Uh, Just remixing a tune of his. Cool. Last question from the box, just say when. Uh, When? How does being a DJ make you feel? Being a DJ makes me feel lucky, thrilled, and immense satisfaction. I feel lucky that my job is just to play my favourite records to other people, which I'd do if they came around my house anyway. And like we said before, it would be my hobby if it wasn't my job. So to get paid to do your hobby, that's got to be the best job in the world, that whole adage of you, you never work a day in your life. So lucky to be able to do it. There's a, a power and a beauty in seeing a whole room or field full of young people just losing themselves in the moment. There's a power. It's almost religious. Someone made a comment about my shows, and it just said, dancing, community, joy, connection, solidarity. And I was just like, oh, God, yeah, that's just some, that's exactly what we're trying to do. So it's a beautiful thing to be the ringmaster and, and see all that unfolding in front of you. And it's a joy that never goes stale for me and there's always a a new supply of fresh young people who want to explore that so watching them do it and being part of it and being the conductor of it all gives me immense satisfaction and at the end of the night if I feel that everybody's had a night you know a great time and had that moment of connection or that moment of escape or that moment of just unbridled you know you sometimes you look at somebody's face and you just really at that moment they are just having the night of their lives and nothing else matters and or you see two people snogging and just think oh you know and it's great because at my age i couldn't then carry on you know in the old days you know that would just inspire me to want to do that myself for the rest of the night but at my age and, and and being sober i can just park it at the end of the night go to bed and live to fight another day which is great because I make a great point of dictating the boundary where, where Norman ends and Fatboy Slim begins because Norman's a, a responsible father of two and a, th- a thoughtful, caring person. And Fatboy Slim's this kind of hedonistic, irresponsible lunatic. And so I get him out for two hours. I put on the Hawaiian shirt, take off my shoes and go out there and I can be as irresponsible as I want for two hours. But I have to park that as soon as I come off stage. I have to go back to being a responsible member of society. One or two quick fires, if that's all right, Norman. Yeah. Uh, your favourite club in the world? My favourite club in the world was Space in Ibiza. Right now, Mambo in Ibiza. It's not technically a club, it's a beach bar, but it's just about my favourite place to play. And, uh, you know, my kids come, my, my son played it with me last year. And after him growing up in that DJ booth for 18, 19 years of his life, to then now be DJing in the just makes my heart melt. Clubs or festivals? For me, clubs. I prefer clubs. Festivals are exciting, but for me, they're harder work and uh, less 
imaginative for me in the sets. You have to play just the big tunes. Whereas in a club, I can go on a proper journey with people and we can go to some strange places together. Have you ever felt euphoric? I've felt euphoric for large proportions of my life, uh, one way or another. I get a euphoria out of my job. Like I said, you know, watching people turned on and escaping and, and having the night of their life is a very euphoric thing. I've experienced chemically or alcohol-induced euphoria to large extents in my early life. And I still get those moments of euphoria from music. You know, a, a piece of music can still transport me to another place, especially when you play it really loud to a room full of like-minded people who are digging it the same way you do. I still generally get, you know, goosebumps and palpitations about the power of what music can do to me. If you you had a, like a close-up of my arms and every time I hear the chords of Born Slippy kick in, it's just, it's a physical reaction. Final question for you, Norman. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event with a caveat that Fat Boy Slim has to play the last three records on Earth. What would those three records be? Well, so I suppose the lead-up, there would probably be a, an edit of Praise You in there because we will have come a long, long way together. And, and I suppose I'd probably want to hear those chords of Born Slippy one more time before I died. So, yeah, I'd go Born Slippy into Praise You into my re-edit of The End by The Beatles. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Norman, thank you so, so much. It's been such a pleasure. Amazing. Thank you, Norman Cook, Fat Boy Stim. Thank you, Chris, for having us. It's been great. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>